Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Incarnation. Good morning. And a warm welcome to our guests from out of town who are here for the FSU InterVarsity Reunion. Yes. It has been a fun weekend together, reconnecting with old friends. Um, profound weekend, too. Uh, and, and since we have extra InterVarsity people this morning, um, we invited the InterVarsity band to relieve our, our regular band of their duties today. And I'm going to start this sermon with a reference to a classic InterVarsity Press book. So the book is called Socrates Meets Jesus. All right? And um, I, don't, I don't understand what's going on with that cover, but... The subtitle is uh, History's Greatest Questioner confronts the claims of Christ. So the book was written by um, a Catholic philosopher named Peter Kraft, and it was published in 1987. And the premise is really interesting. The book, book poses this question, what would happen if Socrates, who's sort of like the grandfather of Greek philosophy, what would happen if he had a conversation with Jesus of Nazareth? And so... Now, Socrates died like 400 years before Jesus' um, time on earth, and so Kraft is left to do this sort of reimagining, you know, this imaginative dialogue between the two based on his extensive knowledge of both. Now, I don't know how much you all know about Socrates, um, but in his own day, he was a force to be reckoned with. Um, he could think on his feet like none other, and he seemed to have this intuitive knowledge that he carried with him of the rules of logic. He was famous for his Socratic method, whereby he would just ask a series of questions in order to demonstrate to you that you don't really know what you think you know. Um, so people loved him. <laughs> Plato, uh, who was Socrates' most famous student, referred to his teacher as the gadfly of the state. Because just as a gadfly stings a horse and gets it going into action, he thought that, that, that uh, Socrates' questions to the Athenians would, would get them kind of moving into a deeper pursuit of the truth. So yeah, you know, like Jesus, um, Socrates was viewed as, as something of an annoyance and a threat to people who were in power. And so perhaps it's not surprising that he too um, was given a shoddy trial and was put to death. But um, Kraft asked this question. How would Socrates, this brilliant philosopher, have dealt with Jesus? Because, first of all, everyone else that Socrates ever questioned had to admit at a certain point that they didn't really know what they claimed to know, right? About the gods or morality or the afterlife. At some point, they came to the end of their rope, right? But Jesus was an altogether different kind of figure. What shocked the Jewish crowds of his day is that Jesus spoke about the things he spoke of as one who had first-hand knowledge, as one who had come from heaven and could speak authoritatively about what he saw, about what he knew. The Gospel of John says, 
No one has ever seen God. In other words, none of us really knows for sure, except, he says, Jesus, the Word made flesh, revelation embodied, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus has made God known. So Jesus could say things with full authority that no human being could have ever known. Right? He could tell the Sadducees, oh no, you don't, people don't get married in heaven. That's not the way that it works. He's like, really, Jesus? How do you know? <laughs> he, could, he could speak with assurance that the temple was going to be destroyed. He could talk about how one of his uh, apostles was going to betray him and when. He could just rattle these kinds of things off. It would be interesting to see how Socrates would have handled these firsthand authoritative claims of Jesus. But aside from the issues of revelation and authority, I think a meeting between Socrates and Jesus would have been interesting on another level. Because in the Gospels, Jesus shows himself to be every bit as skilled in dialogue as Socrates ever was. In fact, more so. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at these five short passages that come in John 20. And uh, each of these passages give us a glimpse into how brilliant how much of a genius Jesus was when it came to dialogue. He would uncover people's secret motives. He, he, he would get out of verbal traps by pointing to pictures on coins. And he points out provocative details in scripture that no one ever saw before. This morning we're going to see Jesus use probably his two most common techniques when it came to dialogue, when it came to communication. First, he answers a question, what? With a question. This is very common for Jesus. And second, he tells a story. All right, that, those are, these are two very common ways that Jesus taught. He asked questions and he taught stories. And through these stories, we find that Jesus is not only holy, right? He's not only spiritual, he's brilliant. He's not only innocent as a dove, He's as shrewd and savvy as, as savvier than any of his critics could have ever expected. His stories are more than good lessons. They're funny, they're surprising and satirical, and they have bite, don't they? I'd be grateful if you grabbed a Bible and opened it to Luke 20, verses 1 through 19. If you have a pew Bible, it's found on page 879. Eight seventy nine, Luke twenty, verses one through nineteen. And again, the first way that Jesus deals with his critics is to answer their questions with a question. That's what we see. It says in verse one that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, so this is the context, by the way. Um, Jesus is at the epicenter of the Jewish world, um, right outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, I've heard people talk sometimes as if they're sort of surprised that Jesus got killed, right? Because it's like, well, he was just like this sort of like quiet guy who kept to himself and just preached like love and peace. And he would, I mean, Jesus wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, but we need to remember 
that Jesus just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with an entourage saying, this guy's the king of Jerusalem. <laughs> Hosanna to the king of kings. Do you think that there was maybe some kind of like political implications to that in Jerusalem? And then upon entering the temple, Jesus began turning over the tables of the money changers, flipping them over. He says, you turn my father's house into a market. It's supposed to be a house of prayer to all nations. And now we find him, after doing these two incredibly controversial things, not hiding out, but teaching the crowds in a very public way. Right? He's behaving as if he just has every right to just be there. Right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here. You know? um, it should not be surprising to us that all these actions infuriated the incumbent authorities of Jerusalem. It says in our text, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, so the whole gang of leaders, this is, this is the uh, component parts of the Sanhedrin, came up to Jesus, they came up, they sat upon him. That might be a good translation. This phrase in Greek, came up, it's confrontational in nature. You remember the story of Jesus with Mary and Martha, and uh, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's like cooking in the kitchen, and she comes up to Jesus, and she says, Hey, my sister's not helping me out here. Um, it's the same Greek phrase that's used here. It's a confrontational phrase, only in this occasion, it's much more serious. So they confront Jesus with this question. They say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority, right? Uh, of course, the subtext of this question is, we're the authorities, and we didn't say that you could, Right? <laughs> So their question puts Jesus in a tough place. He could tell them that his authority is from God, right? And that would be true. But he would have just come across as like puffing himself up, right? And they wouldn't have believed him anyway. So what does Jesus do? It's a genius move, really, isn't it? He answers their question with a question. He says in verse 3, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven... Or from man? I love that you all laughed when this was read out. Because with this question, Jesus has now put the authorities back on their heels, right? The question exposes their inability, historically, to recognize God-given authority, doesn't it? It exposes their hardness of heart, and it exposed their fear of the people. That's really what's dictating their actions in this passage, is it not? Their fear of the people. So it says they discussed it with one, other, one another. They said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. And furthermore, the people knew that John pointed to Jesus as the rightful king, right? So verse 7, they answered that they didn't know where John's baptism came from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right? And the Greek translation for that is that Jesus dropped the mic. <laughs> but seriously, you know, there's, there's power in a good question, right? Questions bring clarity. They expose people's motives, where they're really coming from, you know? Have you ever had somebody come and ask you a question and you're like, I don't know if this is critical. I don't know if this is coming from a place of hurt for them. I don't know if they're just genuinely curious. And you, and you say, 
Um, well, can you help me understand like wh why why you're wondering this? Um, and just that extra question can soften hearts. It can expose motives. It can help you have a better idea of how to give an answer, right? Instead of just rattling things off, right? Questions give you the information you need to know in order to answer people's um, concerns more sensitively. And uh, they can also activate people's consciences. A good question can activate the conscience. I think one of the best examples I know of this comes from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail. So um, MLK, he, he's, in, uh, he's in jail in Birmingham. It's 1963. And uh, while he's in jail, he receives these criticisms from moderate pastors, you know, well-meaning people who are just like, you know, uh, Martin, you know, you're stirring up trouble. Um, you need to be more patient. And they accused him of being an extremist. Right? And listen to King's response. He brings this barrage of questions in order to appeal to their sense of reason and conscience. Listen to what he says. Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. He says, Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my marks, he said, the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says, Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. And King concludes, So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we'll be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? What a masterful example of the power of asking good questions, amen? But you know, this principle of asking good questions applies to more than just confrontations. It applies to, for example, evangelism. You know, often we're far too quick to speak and slow to listen. We try to like force a conversation down a preset path so that nothing happens that's like out of our control. It's like, no, you have to answer in this way because I'm bringing you down this evangelistic road, right? <laughs> um, but notice how often Jesus starts evangelistic conversations with a question, right? He says to the teacher of the law in Luke 10, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? He says, right? he says to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he asked the Samaritan woman at the well, Will you give me something to drink? Jesus so often starts with a question. For Jesus, evangelism isn't a monologue. It's a dialogue. So the next time like God or spirituality or the topic of church comes up with a co-worker, I wonder how they'd respond if instead of like slipping in our little soundbite of truth, we ask them a question. Hey, I remember you said you grew up in church. What was that like for you? What was that like? 
have you ever had any spiritual experiences like at church or like maybe not at church, you know? Um, what's your view on such and such topic? I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on that. And then we do something very countercultural. We listen. <laughs> we don't judge. We show genuine interest because in fact we're genuinely interested in them. Because they're created in the image of God. And Jesus died to purchase them. That's how interested he was in them. And people aren't used to that, are they? When people feel listened, they feel cared for. They let their guard down, and we become more open to hearing other people's stories and experiences, right? And then sharing your own story, your testimony, in a vulnerable way, that's a next powerful step. In, 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 in showing them the love, the transformative love and goodness of God. So evangelism involves listening, it involves asking good questions, but it's also more than that. Listening, what it does is it paves the way for us to share about the mighty work of God in our own lives. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, often applied to apologetics, but it could be equally applied to our testimony, right? Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. People are oftentimes much more open to just hearing your experience than hearing just like, hey, here's the objective download that I'm going to, you know, bonk you on the head with. You share, well, I, you know, all I know is that I was going through this in my life, and then this started happening, and then I started experiencing peace, and then I met this person, and I mean, people are interested in that sort of thing. Do the non-Christians in your life know your story? Have you shared with them how God has impacted your life? Do you know their story? We should. And all this is opened up by just asking good questions. All right, so that's the first thing. Jesus answers a question with a question. Second, Jesus answers his critics by telling a story. I remember um, years ago, um, the Bodos and the Halls were still living in Pittsburgh. And we had this meeting together, uh, and we were trying to make plans for planting a church in Tallahassee. And uh, I remember uh, my daughters were there, um, the Hall kids were there, and uh, Nora was listening. She was probably about five years old. She was listening to our conversation for a while, and she got this confused look on her face, and she asked Jim Hobby, who was, who was at this meeting, she said, why do grown-ups always talk about things instead of telling stories? <laughs> 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 I was just like, and uh, she, you know, she's like, why so many words, you know? <laughs> Wouldn't it just make more sense if you just told stories, you know? It'd be more entertaining for me. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember Jim said, I don't know, Nora. That's a really good question. Well, the cool thing about Jesus is that he's an adult that never forgot the importance of telling good stories. Mm. Right? When he wanted to get the most important things across, he's like, there was a man who was going from here to here. Like, what? <laughs> he was famous at telling these punchy short stories called parables. And sometimes his stories were just like simple and earthly. A man was sowing seeds. And sometimes they were mysterious. And they really brought up more questions than answers. I think out of all his parables, this one in Luke 20, verses 9 through 16, is actually, it's actually one of the clearest um, in terms of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And even if it, it doesn't seem clear to us, it would have been crystal clear 
to the first century Jewish audience that heard it for the first time. So let's summarize. It's the parable, sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants. He says, um, so there's this, there's this person um, who owns a field and he plants a vineyard in it. And then he, he's going to go away. So he hires these tenants to work the vineyard. And then after a while, he sends a servant because he, he says, hey, I, I want some of the yield of this vineyard that I started that you're stewarding for me, right? And, uh, and, they, uh, and they beat in, uh, in the first servant. And he's like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> um, and he, so he sends him a second servant. And, uh, and they beat him and they mistreat him and they send him away. They send a third servant. And, and, and the same thing happens. And uh, the owner of the field says, all right, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son, the heir, and then maybe they'll pay attention, right? Then maybe I'll get some respect from them, these stewards that I've given my field to. But what do they do when they see the heir coming? <clears throat> they say, this is the heir. Like, if we kill this guy, then the vineyard's ours, <laughs> right? We get to keep it. <clears throat> so that's what they do. And, and Jesus says, you know, what do you think's going to happen to these tenants? Like when the owner returns, man, he's going to bring the judgment upon them, right? He's, he's going to bring the hammer. And the people, the people who are listening, they get what's going on. They're like, uh, look, you know, God forbid that should happen, you know? Uh, so Jesus is, is he's telling them this story. What, is, what does this parable mean? And who do the characters refer to? Sometimes in parables, um, they refer almost one-to-one -one with somebody. Sometimes it's like, well, the unjust judge, for example, in the parable we studied a few weeks back, you know, he has, he, he's like God in that he, he's in a position of power, but, but God, we know that God is just and good. He cares about his people, right? So sometimes there's not that one-to-one. -one. But in this, it really seems like there's very specific characters that Jesus has in mind. So first, uh, any first-century Jewish person would immediately know that the vineyard referred to Israel. It referred to God's people. Because this symbol has already been well established throughout the Hebrew scriptures. For example, Psalm 80 speaks, which we just sang, speaks about Israel's rescue from slavery under Pharaoh. And it says in verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So they're viewed as this, this vine, this grapevine that, that God is planting in the promised land. And then in our reading from Isaiah 5, the, the prophet described God as this loving farmer who has a vineyard. And the Lord cared for the vineyard. He protects it in Isaiah 5. He fertilized it only to find that it's become overrun. And, and it makes it very clear what it's become overrun with, which is uh, injustice and bloodshed. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the vineyard is Israel. And the owner, the original planter, is God. And of course, the, the servants um, that God sent to the tenants time and time again are the Hebrew prophets, right? Like Isaiah. Like John the Baptist who were representatives of the master and his will. And do you notice in this parable that the, the violence escalated with all three servants? I don't know if you realize that. So the first one in verse 10 is beaten. 
The second one is beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. The third one is not only beat, beaten, but wounded, it says, and thrown out. And then we hear of the final servant, the suffering servant of the Lord, who is in fact more than a servant. It's the beloved son of the owner, the rightful heir of the entire vineyard. Does this remind you of anything that's going on? <laughs> Jesus just returned to Jerusalem with people shouting, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the rightful heir, the king of Jerusalem. Who are these tenant farmers that the owner rents the vineyard to, the ones who show no concern for their master's will? Who are these people? Yeah, these leaders, right? These Jerusalem leaders. It says in verse 19, I mean, they didn't miss this, did they? Mm. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus that very hour, for they perceived, rightly, that he had told this parable against them. And you always get mad because you're like, I can't tell as good stories as that guy. <laughs> you know, sometimes um, uh, when a steward is given power, and they're left alone for a little while, they start to think, you know, this place is mine. You know, I got squatter's rights here. <laughs> I don't want to give this back. Right? I, I, um, I think a good example of this is, uh, is, is from Lord of the Rings. In, in Return of the King. You guys knew I had to go there. Too. It was that or Simpsons. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so if you remember, um, Gandalf uh, rides into Gondor, and he's, he's going up this massive city, and he goes up to the throne, uh, to the throne room, and there's this steward. The steward's name is Denethor. He's not, on the, he's not on the mighty, the high throne, because he's not the king. He's the steward. But the king's been away for a while, so he's sitting on this other throne. And, uh, and he knows, he's a real crafty guy, and he knows Gandalf is here, and I've been hearing rumors that, that the heir, Aragorn, He's been found, and he's going to come back here, and Gandalf is going to try to soften me for this, but I don't like this, right? That's what Denethor is thinking. And uh, he says, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. Remember that line? And Gandalf says, Authority is not given you to deny the return of the king, steward. <laughs> it's this great confrontational scene, right? He says, look, that, that's not your job. You're the steward. You hold the fort down until the king returns. Authority is not given you to, the, to deny the return of the king. And you know, Tolkien's story has brilliant application to the story of Jesus, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what these Jerusalem leaders are doing. They're denying the return of the king. This is God's city. These are God's people. This is God's kingdom. And when he sends his only son to claim what is rightfully his, the stewards are not ready to give up their power. Instead, the stewards say to themselves in verse 14, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Or as the apostle John put it, Jesus came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But you know what? I think it's easy to feel morally superior to these Jerusalem leaders, isn't it? When we flatter ourselves, we say, we would have welcomed Jesus. 
Right? We'd have given him the key to the city. Have you given him the key to your life? Do you let him unlock all the doors? Do we have that kind of love and trust for God? Weren't we all at some point like Adam and Eve, still trying to be the rulers of our own lives? The lives that we were given as a stewardship. Remember years ago I met this missionary um, to Sweden. And it was around the time that the Passion of the Christ came out. And there was this big controversy because some people were saying, hey, this, this movie is anti-Semitic. Um, it, it portrays um, the Jews as being uh, responsible for the death of Jesus. And then some of the people from the other side, some people from the other side were saying, hey, um, no, that, that, that's not right. Actually, we see the Romans, they're really participating in this process as well. Right? The Gentiles are involved in crucifying Jesus. And there's this argument back and forth. And at this time, I met this missionary who would wear this shirt around that just said, I killed Jesus. Right? What was he getting at? What was he getting at? You know, Jesus, he didn't have to go to the cross. Did, did anybody take Jesus' life from them? No, he laid it down on his own accord. Why did he do that? He died as a substitute for us. To atone for our sins. And this missionary was saying, look, if God didn't love me so much, Jesus wouldn't have died. Right? It, it, if Jesus hadn't have been compassionate, he would have never gone to the cross. You know who killed Jesus? I killed Jesus. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid, the Lord has laid in his mercy on Jesus the iniquity of us all. All of humanity together rejected God in the garden. All of us together sent Jesus to the cross. The heir wasn't just a victim of injustice, as if he had no power to resist. But the good news doesn't end there. It doesn't end with atonement and forgiveness of sins, because through Jesus, God is actually inviting us all into a new humanity. A new humanity. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus has become the essential building block of a new temple, of a people that God himself will dwell in their midst and in them. He's become the head of a new body. He's the Messiah of a new kind of kingdom characterized by the qualities of God, love and joy and justice and humility. And we're all invited into God's family by putting our faith in the true king. And through Jesus, through his ultimate act of sacrificial love, humanity's broken trust with our creator is finally repaired. We see what his heart for us is really like. Our identity is no longer in Adam. It's in Christ. And you know, that's something that Socrates as great as he was, could never do. <clears throat> because we needed more than good questions. We needed new hearts. We needed a new birth. We needed more than a critic or a gadfly. 
We needed a Savior who loves us and was willing to lay down his life for us. Amen.